I don't think I seem like a maker right away because you think of a maker maybe being similar to a lumberjack. <laughs> All right, so this is This Should Work, session three, an interview with Jen Lawhead, former... Uh, head lab moderator at the idea realization lab this is a bit of a different um, uh, podcast uh, session today because in addition to Jen's interview we're going to be talking a little bit about um, the maker movement we're going to be talking a little bit about um, you know how I got into all of this before we dive into to Jen's interview. So, you know, probably the first uh, 20, 30 minutes here are going to be me talking. You can skip ahead if you just want to hear Jen. Otherwise, um, you know, feel free to listen in. So, uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for coming back. Um, if you're interested in uh, more episodes uh, before we get jump into everything, I just want to make sure everybody knows we have a website, uh, shouldworkmedia.com. You can also subscribe, and please do, please subscribe to the podcast um, on iTunes, Overcast, SoundCloud, um, any of the, the major major uh, RSS slash um, podcast feed places should have us, so please subscribe. All right, so, um, you know, before we, we get into the interview with Jen, I want to talk a little bit about the maker movement and, and set some context to to my involvement so that f- for the listeners who aren't as familiar with my, my background um, or, or for people who are just interested in, in how one gets to where they, they get, uh, you know, you have a little bit of context, you have a little bit of understanding. So uh, about 10, 10 years ago, um, I was on a forum uh, which people still used <laughs> at the time, and the forum was called uh, Manrus, M-A-N-R-U-S. It was a man and a walrus thing. Anyways, it was run. The forum was run by a, uh, a another person who had uh, graduated from my uh, alma mater, North Central College in Naperville, uh, and. Um, you know, it was just a bunch of people posting about, you know, random tech things, things that they're doing, stuff like that. I really miss those days, by the way. It was, it was really fun to be a part of a forum, to be a, you know, you got your little exclusive place where you go and you post things with each other and you razz each other. There are not a lot of places like that anymore. Um, <clears throat> anyway, uh, so about 10 years ago, I'm on the forum and I posted something I'd read I don't remember where. I'd read something about things called uh, maker spaces. It, it might have been in Make Magazine online. Uh, might have been somewhere else. I I don't know. And this is back in the day where you had Google Reader, so you know all my news is kind of coming into one place. You never really know where it's coming from, anyways. So I'm at a I'm working at a law firm uh, in downtown Chicago. Uh, I post in this forum. Uh, a little bit after, actually, I leave the law firm, so we're jumping ahead here, but I, I, I quit my job, uh, which was a, a really good decision. But anyways, I quit my job. I post in this forum about makerspaces, and uh, basically I say, hey, has, has anybody heard of these things? It seems like maybe we should do something like this. We're all tech folks. You know, maybe we should get involved in this. And... Um, and a couple of people replied. So, uh, so uh, it, was, it was myself and Russ Lankenau and um, Adam Dukas, and uh, they all kind of got interested in you know the the same idea. And a couple other people on the forum did too. And we all um, we actually the the three of us, Adam and and Russ and I, met up at uh, at Russ's uh, townhouse, I believe. And anyways. Uh, one thing led to the next, and we we came up with this idea to form a makerspace called Workshop 88. Uh, originally, uh, for maybe oh about half a year, we were in a in a, a very small room in in Naperville, 
and then we moved into the space that uh, Workshop 88 is currently in, in Glen Ellen. But I think the more interesting part about that whole story is before we got a space uh, and how we actually became a thing. Um, and this goes to, I think, the heart of a lot of what makerspaces are. So if we can rewind before Glen Ellen, before Naperville, before any of those spaces, we were just a group of people meeting in a coffee house. And, um, <clears throat> you know, we would get together, uh, and I think we did this for maybe three or four months. And we would just talk about things that we're making, um, you know, and just just sharing this uh, idea of a community of like-minded folks who like making things. And, um, and uh, you know, even before we had a space, people were paying dues. Um, and we're just hanging out in a coffee house uh, on the campus of North Central College. Um, you know, some of the people who, who went on to in invent some really cool stuff uh, were at those first meetings. And, and, you know, they're running their own, their own maker businesses now. Anyways, so, so, you know, the important part about that is, is that makerspaces are a community. They're uh, a community of people. Um, and it doesn't really even matter what space you have or the tools you have. Uh, if you have a, a good community of people who are willing to share knowledge and share their experiences with each other. Now, don't get me wrong. It's really nice to have all the stuff that comes along with a makerspace. But, uh, you know, th that's, that's, not, th that's not the core of what a makerspace is, which is funny because space is in the name. Um, so that was about 10 years ago. 10 years ago, we started Workshop 88. Uh, and then, um, you know, probably about uh, six years ago or so, uh, right before my first daughter was born, I decided that I did not, um, I couldn't travel that far anymore. So Workshop 88 was, was about a 45-minute, you know, give or take uh, handful of minutes drive from my house. And I was, I was starting a family. I didn't want to travel as far. And, and, and more than that, you know, I saw the benefits that makerspaces could, um, to, could give back to the communities that they were in. And I wanted my community to, to have those things so that when my children grew up in those, that community, uh, they'd have access to those resources too. And, um, and so I, I stepped down from my board position at, at Workshop 88, um, and I, I moved on to the creation of this, this other space um, that I, I'm still currently involved with, which is uh, Space Lab. Uh, space Lab is, has been around for, oh, uh, maybe six years or so. Um, space Lab's a, a, a not-for-profit uh, you know, and that's actually a recent thing, our tax status at least. Um, and uh, we're right in the heart of downtown Mokina, Illinois. So uh, so that's about six years ago, five, six years ago. Um, you know, we start that space up uh, and um, you know, start building that up. Kind of starts out a little bit less makerspace, a little bit more co-working, uh, but you know, just with the way that my inclinations generally lean into, we, we became a makerspace relatively quickly. So, um, you know, we're currently housed in a, about a 2,500, um, square foot space, uh, that has, you know, kind of all the traditional maker tools in it, as well as, you know, some craft, more traditional craft tools. We just picked up a loom for instance. And, uh, and uh, we've been working out of there for, for quite some time. Um, around the same time of starting Space Lab, uh, I also, as part of this idea of getting involved with the community, uh, started um, an event, uh, a Maker Fair, uh, which is a, a franchised event that a company called Maker Media, they make Make Magazine, does. So we started Southland Mini Maker Fair. Um, and we've been doing that since too. Uh, keep your eyes open. We've changed the dates this year, by the way, and make your fair will be sometime in December, uh, or, or, or a little bit later even. 
So, uh, so we've got this new space, Space Lab. We've got, um, you know, this Maker Fair running. We've got this this community of people building. You know, there are some ups, there are some downs, um, but it's it's really nice to say that that really both of these spaces are are still around. Both Workshop eighty eight, um, which is in downtown Glen Ellen, uh, Illinois, and and still exists now and is very strong. You know, exists. Uh, and um and space lab exists as well uh you know the experiences i've got out of both of these spaces are are are, are and i've seen and that i've seen other people get out of these spaces really um are are tremendous they're great breeding grounds for um for companies for startups you know we have several startups uh, out of space lab now 3d printing companies um you know we have uh, consultancies we have people who are, are getting into, you know, milling their own things. So that's one aspect. And then, and then the other, which is really interesting, is, is this whole aspect of people who, um, y- you know, maybe aren't starting their own companies, but they're working at startups. And those startups need people who, um, who can think in an agile manner, who can think differently, who can uh, think on the fly, um, People, people who are a little bit outside of the mold. And, and that pretty much fits the bill of, uh, of makers as well. And, and so what I've seen a lot of is, is not only, you know, this, this aspect of people starting their own companies, but also, uh, you know, just of people getting, you know, good jobs, good recommendations, um, consulting projects and so forth. Uh, from other people at these makerspaces. So not only are makerspaces great places for innovation to happen, but they're great places to network and meet people and and get you know get your start uh, in the, in the tech world. And certainly, you know, I've done that as well. Um, you know, I've I've had the the great privilege actually of of uh, connecting with people who um, you know I'm thinking of my friend Mike Emmerich, for instance, who connected me with a job in uh, at a company called uh, MapR, where I worked for about a year. Uh, and that was a tech startup um, based out of San Jose, although I still stayed in Illinois. Uh, and that was really life-changing to, to be able to work at a, at a startup like that. It was pretty cool. So, you know, th- those kinds of things are, are not rare, actually, at makerspaces. They happen all the time. Um, yeah, so, so that's, uh, you know, that's kind of the, the fast-forward to, to where we are now. We've got the you know, the forum, then, then workshop 88, then we skip forward to space lab and, and, uh, the maker fair and the, you know, the main thread, the common thread through all of these things is, um, you know, community building is sharing ideas is this idea that we should give back to the community that we we're in, not only build our own internal community, but, you know, reach outside of ourselves to help other people. Um, and, and really this is connected a lot, uh, you know, in the last handful of years with, with the idea of, of connecting to STEM and connecting to education. And so, uh, that is kind of how we end up with, um, you know, all of the, the, the various classes and workshops that we teach at Space Lab right now, for instance, uh, that, that help kids, that help adults as well. Um, and teach them STEM skills. So I want to put a pin in that for a second and kind of jump ahead to uh, some of my time at uh, DePaul. Uh, So I'm currently a a faculty member and a a director at DePaul University, uh, where I direct about a 4,500 square foot makerspace in the loop. And and some years ago, I started out at DePaul as, a, as an adjunct faculty member. And then after I left Matt Barr, which I had just talked about, um, I came back to DePaul as as a, a full-time uh, contracted lecturer. And, um, you know, a couple years in, uh, there was this idea to build a makerspace at DePaul. And so, uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, and a lot of work went into putting it all together, but eventually we, we built this, this makerspace. Uh, and that's very much in the vein of, you know, these STEM skills that we're talking about, 
uh, as well, right? Um, you know, universities and, and K-12 institutions are not, they're, they're building makerspaces for a reason. And, and that reason is because they encourage um, thinking through making and hands-on learning and these STEM skills that, that you know, are our nation and, and all of us recognize as, as being uh, important, not only for the creation of things, but for the, you know, the sustainability of, of the creative American spirit. And, and so then, you know, we, we built this space uh, at DePaul um, and that started, that opened last year. And uh, we hired several uh, student workers and, um, you know, and that's where Jen uh, who you're going to hear your interview from in a second came came out of, um, and uh, and now she's working at at Bosch, and, and I'm really happy to say that you know I see that kind of future for a lot of our student workers and also the students who work out of uh, the Idea Realization Lab at DePaul University. So, how does this all lead to this podcast? What's this about, and we've talked a little bit about what this podcast is about in previous episodes, um, but but I really want to tie this all in. So from from all of this experience that we talked about, and and from all of the work that I've been doing at, at DePaul, which is very much in in the uh, vein, the, the lineage, if you will, of people who came uh, before or who are still doing work now, uh, like. Uh, Tim Ingold and um, and Bill Buxton and um, Seymour Papert and, and, and many others. You know, we have this lineage of, of thinking through making. And so we've got this experience that I've had over the past decade building these spaces and communities. And then this experience at DePaul. And then, you know, b- beginning to bridge that gap within the last year of that experience by reaching out to places and institutions like uh, like Caterpillar, uh, you know the big yellow truck company, where I, I, I created a certification in making, um, you know we're, we're we're beginning to kind of bridge that gap. And so this po- podcast is is a lot of of uh, is a branch of of that line of thinking is a branch of let's let's take these this past decade of experience and let's really drill down into the core of what whatever we're calling this the maker movement maker culture what it is um and you know there was an experience i had maybe about a month ago now that kind of highlights this and and so i was at an event um it's a it's called a ham fest and uh, a ham fest is, is very much for, for those of you who've been to Maker Fair. It's it's very much like an older form of a, a Maker Fair. Uh, for those of you who haven't, I'll I'll, I'll describe it briefly. A, a ham fest is is a, an event where people who are into amateur radio, ham radio, you know, who have their licenses, they've they've got their own radios, they're able to talk on restricted bands that other people aren't. Um, they all get together and show off you know, the technology that they're working with and, and the joy of the things that they're interested in. And I was talking to a gentleman there um, about HamFest, and he lamented uh, in passing that the events, the HamFests that he goes to, you know, they get smaller and smaller and, and smaller every year. Um, and the reason, he said, is because of the proliferation of, of, you know, of ubiquitous radio technologies, which is the mobile phones that we carry around with us. Um, and, and what that did was that removed a lot of the interest and uh, necessity in, in getting a ham radio license. You can, any consumer, any person can buy a cellular phone. Why would you go through this licensing and test process to do essentially the same thing. Now, of course, I know, and and for those of you who are into amateur radio, know that that's, you know, there's a lot more to amateur radio than that. But you know, generally speaking, that's the question that many people ask themselves. So the prolifer- proliferation of this technology reduced the size of the the ham community and 
and the events that they host. And, and that really got me thinking um, because as, as we see makerspace technology um, also becoming more ubiquitous and proliferating, as we see people being able to purchase very inexpensive $200 to $300 3D printers and put them in their homes, for instance, um, you know, the question becomes, why would I join a space to gain access to this technology? You know, 10, 10 years ago, all this technology might have been expensive, might have been hard to get your hands on. Now it's, now it's really easy. You know, it's, it's kind of like the microwave. You buy a microwave 30, 40 years ago. It was super expensive. You know, it was a, it was a very expensive appliance. And then they became ubiquitous. They're in everybody's homes. Well, you know, that's the same way with 3D printers, with laser cutters, with all this technology. And so what happens when maker culture is eaten, is consumed by, you know, your everyday uh, individual, your everyday consumer? What happens to maker spaces, maker culture? What What is that, you know, ham, ham radio still has you know, a five to to ten percent of of what its core essence is remaining. Um, you know, you can't take it away with cell phones. There's something at the core of it that's different and special. Um, but what is that? What's that five or ten percent at the core? What's that five or ten percent that makes making maker spaces, maker culture special? That will continue to to remain. That will shine through. Uh, as as we we consume um, and and eventually uh, overwhelm maker culture. So that's kind of what this podcast is about. What's at the core of all of this? How do we find what's special about what we're all doing? And you know, through the people that we're interviewing, uh, you know, what we're what we're the people we're talking to, um, these are all individuals who who have kind of taken their make to have have taken making have, have taken maker culture to that next level of have, have scaled up um, have have moved outside the the sandbox and are um, you know mass manufacturing things or they have found you know real applications for these things and and these are things that will sustain. And continues to to live um, beyond, you know, this inevitable consumption, this this inevitable uh, incorporation of maker culture, which is great, into everything else. Um, and and you know, if you, the, what we're trying to pull out here are, are are the patterns, right? The patterns of what these people are doing that might have. Uh, you know, if we see these patterns over and over again, if we see people talking about curiosity and, and overcoming um, obstacles or, or, you know, if we see people talking about tinkering and playfulness, uh, maybe that's part of what this whole maker thing um, is all about. Maybe that's what's going to le- be left remaining for us when, when maker culture you know, uh, becomes one with, with, uh, with mainstream. So, uh, that kind of leads us into, uh, our interview today with Jen Lawhead. So Jen Lawhead, um, you know, and I'll, I'll be giving a, a more, uh, succinct introduction in a second here, but, um, it was one of the very first hires uh, that we made at the Idea Realization Lab at DePaul University. Um, you know, Jen had not used um, pretty much any of the tools that were in the makerspace when uh, when she started. And, and the reason why I mentioned that um, is, number one, because, I mean, as a testament to herself, in part, she, she picked those things up so quick, so quick. Um, but also, I think, as a testament to the maker movement, maker culture, um, it's that if you provide somebody with the environment 
that encourages them to to disregard any mistakes that they might make, um, to just kind of dive in and tinker and learn, um, well, then they can learn just about anything. Uh, and not only can they learn and master many of those things, but then they can go on to teach people those things. And, and that's really where Jen and a lot of our student workers at, at the lab at DePaul scale up to is, is they are not just users and practitioners but they take it to that next elevated level of also being teachers and they teach people how to use that technology. And so when you listen to, to this interview, this is a very important one for me because, um, this was one of the, the first times ever, everybody, I mean, making is and, and maker being a maker is something that everybody always is, right? It, it, it's not like you become it. It's, it's in all of us. Right. But, it was very interesting and it's, it's, it was, it was very significant, a significant experience to me personally to, to watch Jen and to watch our other student workers and to continue to watch many of our student workers, um, at the lab as I continue to run it, um, evolve into agents of change who see their environments around them as things that they control things that they can modify and hack um, or even destroy and, and then make their own environment, right? Make their own thing. And I, I think that that is a, a unique thing, not just with students, and, and it, but with all people, right? That w this is a problem that we have these days is, um, you know, without sounding too much like an old man yelling at clouds, uh, the, you know, an, an issue and a crisis that I, th I really do believe we face right now is, is that we do not understand how things work and we accept things for how they are. And we don't think that we have the ability to change things. And we think that things happen to us. And places like makerspaces can really change that way of thinking by showing us that all these things are made by other people uh, and, and they're changeable. Um, and that, uh, not only that, but, but that you don't have full control over how that change might happen, right? That, that you have to have this constant conversation with these systems, with the environment, with the materials around you. And you, you have to have this conversation in a way that produces this change that becomes, that comes forth from, from the work that you do, that the action that you do. And so it's been really great to watch these students evolve into these individuals who realize that because this is, this is something that is a rare quality, I think, in, every, in everybody today. You don't see a quality of a person who can look around them and see things as not as they are, but as they could be. Or as my wife likes to say, sees beyond the, the context, right? sees into other contexts and other ways of being and other ways of becoming. So listen for some of those things uh, in this interview. And, and, uh, and, and certainly they're brought up quite often. And, and listen to this person who is, is right at the beginning of, of their, their journey into, um, into becoming. All right. I'm going to get off my uh, my soapbox now. We're going to jump into session three with Jen Lawhead, uh, the uh, my first and former head lab moderator at the Idea Realization Lab at DePaul University. We'll take it away from here. I hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks. So this is the This Should Work podcast, session number three. I've got Jen Lawhead, ex-head lab moderator, student at DePaul University, recent graduate, and who is now working at uh, Bosch. Jen, how are you and what did I miss? I'm good. Um, I work at Bosch, but I specifically support the Dremel team. I'm doing high-speed rotary accessories and all of those good stuff. 
Tell me what's the what's the difference? What's Bosch Dremel? What's the difference between those two things? Um, well, I think there's definitely like a, a personality difference. Um, Dremel is very scrappy, and we are at the core of like this maker movement. We are doing some more things in digital fabrication, and Bosch is more of what you think of as a traditional kind of power tool area. So we're, okay. we're expanding a little bit in more creative fields. So can you talk a little bit, are you at liberty to, and I don't want to get you in trouble here, but are you at liberty to talk about some of the things that you're working on at Dremel yeah. um, and uh, and maybe how your work specifically can, contributes to some of that? Um, well, I am the graphic designer here um, and I support a, a lot of the different areas around here. So when people need content, I can supply that for them. Um, and right now we're running our Maker Days um, campaign. So this whole month through September, um, there's daily giveaways and there's a big grand prize. Uh, you can win one of the two with a new laser cutter that we just released. So that's kind of my main focus right now. Oh, very cool. When does that last until, by the um, way? <laughs> I'm pretty sure September. Um, I can't remember the date off the top of my head. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's yeah. fine. That's fine. So, so when you're working on on uh, as the graphic designer mm -hmm. on, um, and I mean that's what you got your degree in at DePaul, yeah. right? Um, but but you know when you're working on these projects as a graphic designer, um, you know we're going to talk a little bit more about the idea realization mm -hmm. lab uh, in a little bit. But how does how does what you you know um, your background contribute to to your current work and and um, you know can you can you talk a little bit more specifically about you know how how your graphic design background um, helps as well with, yeah. with what you're doing there at Dremel. So um, when people think of graphic design, they think of making posters or websites or, you know, everything digital. But since we are a power tool company and I do have a strong maker background um, before I came here, um, my main goal is to actually use the tools and create, uh, create original content. Um, that means like projects that I work on, um, anything that I want to fabricate myself. Um, so it's super fun and I get to take pictures of those and use those in our advertisements and our social channels and kind of show more of a personality that, you know, we're real people here and we're makers too. And it's not just people who don't know how to use the tools sitting behind the desks. Um, we love to do all of this stuff ourselves. Where can we find some of the stuff that you're, that you're putting out online right now? Um, I did just start in June, so it's uh, trickling in right now, but um, mainly through our Instagram and our Facebook areas. Um, and I have a bunch of stuff lined up that's coming out through. But yeah, on our social channels and on our website, jumble.com. What's, uh, and, and also, you know, as, as your stuff comes out and we get to mm -hmm. see some of the new things at Dremel, um, you know, keeping, we're, I'm not, this is not a Dremel promotion or anything, but I'm just interested <laughs> in you, Jen, and yeah. what you're doing. Um, so just for people listening, uh, anyways, um, <laughs> what, what is it, what is it that you're most excited? You talked about digital fabrication and some mm -hmm. of the other tools that Dremel's working on. What is, you know, as you're working on these projects, what's some of the stuff that you're most excited about that Dremel's doing? Um, and, and can you talk a little bit about why you're most excited about that? Well, um, we just recently launched these, um, digital fabrication units. So our 3d printer and our laser cutter. But I think I'm most excited about the fact that we're making these more accessible to people who wouldn't normally consider themselves makers. So um, they're maybe artistic in nature or consider themselves craftspeople, but we want to kind of introduce them to these whole new segment of like power tools and um, how it can make you even more intense of a maker. Because just like me looking through all of the images of our products, I'm like, oh my God, there's so many things I can do. I, I just didn't know that there was something out there that actually did this. Like I can like wood burn using the Versa tip. And it's just really cool that we're expanding the audience. So you said, um, you know, you're trying, you're, your Dremel is helping uh, people who do not consider themselves uh, makers. Um, you know, you're, you're accessing them and, and you're, mm -hmm. you're you're bringing them into the fold. How, uh, how, how are, how are you going about doing that? How do you go about reaching people who don't think of themselves, uh, as makers mm -hmm. and, and convince them that, you know, they can, they can get into 3d printing, they can get into mm -hmm. laser cutting, uh, they can, you know, they can do whatever they want. How do you, how do you trans, you know, and this is an interesting question from, from the podcast 
you know, standpoint too, because a lot of what we're talking about is not just people who are currently making things, but you know, what also is interesting is people who aspire to do that. And how do you, how do you bring them into the fold? Um, well, there's a part of my team that they have this specific specialty. So the market researchers, um, they know exactly where we can figure out what, like what, um, channels that people are on but also we're going into like classrooms we've got a whole education section and we're also doing a lot of events we actually just did one last night um, and we facebook live to the whole demo where we taught people how to carve um, not carve but engrave onto glasses that you could drink from and it was really fun and there was a bunch of people there who they like to make stuff sometimes but they never called themselves makers and we're telling them like there's this specific application, but like, you can also do these things. So we're reaching out a lot through trade shows and events, um, filled with people who are minded in that way, like bloggers maybe who do like to spruce up their house, um, through little DIY projects. And that's another term too, is I think a lot of people might consider themselves a DIYer before they consider themselves a maker. And those are the kind of the people we're trying to bring into the fold and be like, Hey, you already do things yourself and you, you're pretty handy, but like, let's take it up a notch and like get into the maker mindset. Sure, sure, sure. So this, that's really interesting. I've, you know, uh, when I spoke with um, Andrew in our session, uh, he's the president of Pumping Station One. And, um, you know, one of the things that uh, we talked about is, you know, how people who are of the maker, you know, in this whole maker thing, sometimes or oftentimes have a digital background. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, people who don't have a digital background, but do have a background in craft or in DIY might not think of themselves as makers. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, f- from what I've seen, you guys are creating tools that are, you know, maybe a little bit more accessible than, mm-hmm. um, you know, some of the other projects out there. And, yeah. and so people feel like they don't have to know as much about the digital, uh, as they once, mm-hmm. as they once did. Um, is that is that a good way to summarize it? Do you think, or yeah? And I is there think you yeah. You mentioned how things are more accessible. Um, there are a lot of different applications. I'm sorry, I'm like super excited about the product too. Um, but I just like didn't realize that you could use this small little handhold tool, and it's like uh, maybe the size of a couple markers together, and you can cut through things, and you can like you know grind into stuff, and there's all these different applications, and it makes imagining like a 3d world a little bit easier um once you have something that just fits in your hand what's the and i don't think you gave the what's the name of the tool oh it's like almost all of them um they're just oh, rotary okay. tools so it's just the different accessory that you attach it to and if you're yeah. using like a cutting blade or a sanding um, bit or a carving bit and they have these different ones that can go across almost every material you might need to use Sure. So when you, is that what you guys used when you were teaching people how to etch into the glasses or yeah. uh, what would you do there? We were using our newest um, tool. It's called the Stylo Plus. And it's actually, it's my favorite tool because it's the size of one marker and it fits perfectly in your hand. So some of the other ones that we have, they're a little bulkier and it's kind of hard to do the detail work, but they're made for the craftsperson who wants to you know, draw images onto things, but like actually etching them or, you know, really wants to get into the detail work because it's so much easier to hold. And it, it, it really is. I love using it. So what if I wanted to throw it on a, uh, a CNC router? Could I do that too? Or is that, uh, <laughs> is that not allowed? Um, theoretically you could, I wouldn't uh, recommend it though. Cause um, it's a little like later in power um, because it is more for like a, not intense application. Okay. Yeah. So you told me I can't do something. You so could. I'm going to have to do it. Now. <laughs> <laughs> I, you could really test it, but um, we have other ones that have like higher speeds and more intense motors. So I would recommend those sure. ones instead. Well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to make you talk too much about Bosch mm-hmm. because I know you haven't, you've been there for two, two months. Yeah. How, how many months? Since now? June. Two months. <laughs> wow. Okay. So you've been there for two months. Um, you know, before we we kind of move on, is there anything else you wanted to talk about with? And I shouldn't keep saying Bosch because really it's mm-hmm. Dremel. But is there is there is there anything else? Um, you know, or even words of advice that you give other students who are interested in getting into this space, who you know maybe are are at other maker spaces mm-hmm. at the their universities. Oh. Um, is there any words of wisdom you want to give them about about your what yeah, you're currently doing there? Um, as far as like maybe other designers go. Um, 
this isn't exactly a, an area most graphic designers would think like, oh, I'm working for power tools and stuff. But if you have other passions, like definitely make them part of your work because some people say like, oh, don't make the thing you love doing the most your job, but it can really fold into something and it doesn't have to be the whole focus. But I love making and that's like why I'm here uh, because I am kind of the end user as well as the person who's behind all of the stuff. So if you like something that you're doing, like talk about it and make more stuff about it and share it with people because really that's going to translate and they can see your passion through that. Cool. So, I mean, what it's, you're kind of synthesizing interests and backgrounds, right? You've got this, this educational background and graphic design, and then, and then you've got this other background in, Mm -hmm. in making and and tinkering and, and you're kind of, you know, finding a way where, where you're synthesizing those things. And this is something, um, you know, I think, again, not to refer back to other uh, interviews that we've done, but, um, you know, Andrew and I talked about how, uh, you know, you might get a game design degree and you, you might think out of college, the only thing design you can do games. is, is uh, design games. Right. Um, but there's so much more that you can do with that way of thinking. And it, it sounds like, you know, you found some common thread between graphic design and, and making. Is that, does that Could sound you about right that to question? you? Uh, my earbuds cut off. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So I said, I, I said, uh-huh. what it sounds like is is that you found some common thread between uh, graphic design and making, and you've synthesized uh-huh. those things somehow. And I was wondering if you could, you know, as as a way of kind of moving into some of the other things that you're doing, if you could talk about what you see as the common thread between those well, two things. I definitely think they're super related because I started my education you know freshman year I picked graphic design because I was doing just a little bit of it in high school Um, I didn't know it was a term otherwise I would have like looked for design schools (laughs) Um, and I fell in love with it but I was really troubled in the first two years of college because I didn't really know whether or not I was actually artistic um, because I like to make things but I would never like straight up say I was an artist Um, And then it wasn't until junior year where I started taking more art classes that I felt more in tune with the artistic side I was seeing in more of my peers. But then when I started working at the IRL, I really realized that um, I I didn't 100% identify as being an artist because I I like to physically make things that aren't considered traditional art. Um, And they're more like, I don't know, in my mind, useful objects. But now those translate directly into what I'm doing. And I, I love doing it. I'm doing stuff around the house all the time and um, I'm excited about projects and it, it's exciting to put those into like all of the assets that I'm creating now. Well, let's, let's talk about the IRL because you mentioned the IRL um, and uh, you know, so for, for people who uh, aren't familiar, that's the idea realization lab at, at DePaul university. That's where you were <laughs> our, our first, Head lab moderator, and I guess disclaimer: I'm the I'm the faculty director for the Idea Realization Lab. For those people who don't know, Jen and I have known each other for the last now year yeah. something year and a half almost, um, and uh, you know just did an amazing job, uh, you know making sure that um, the lab uh, was was what it was set out to become. Um, so let's let's talk a little bit about you know, some of the stuff that you did there and, and maybe some of your personal projects too. I'd like to talk about that. What do you, Jen, what do you, uh-huh. you know, outside of Dremel, um, what are you doing right now? What are you working on? Any, any fun craft projects? I know you have a couple side things. Yeah. <laughs> I just moved into a new apartment um, and I took the master bedroom uh, and my two roommates got the other ones, but the master bedroom has a back office attached to it which is seven by 10. So I actually put my bed in there and I'm going to use the room as a studio. So I've kind of been focusing on getting that up to speed. Um, and I painted all the walls. I've never painted the walls before. Um, but I also like made the effort to be a little bit of a perfectionist since I'm like, this is the first wall and probably the last walls that I'll paint. So I chipped all of the gross peeling paint off and I made sure it was all sanded down. And I really took ownership of my room but my next project that I'm going to work on um I've kind of got two parts um the first one is I want to um make these like moss rings to put on the wall because the one of the the accent wall I painted was green 
and I want to route out these circles and um, route out a smaller frame to put on top of it and put this preserved moss inside of it and hang it on the wall. And then the other project I want to start, um, hopefully this weekend, if not during the week, um, is making like a topographical table. So I'm going to cut out like these squiggly kind of shapes and then um, have them go down into it. So I'll use like a one eighth inch MDF or maybe plywood. I haven't decided yet. Um, to make these shapes and stack them on top of each other to form a table. So you're 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 basically you're taking control of of your environment, the things around you, um, <clears throat> by making things, and that that's really interesting. I I guess m my next question would be how long, um, how, you you know you how long have you considered yourself a maker? I guess is my first question, and then and and, and what's changed since since that happened? Um, that's is this something that you would have done before or what changed that, that made this something that you're, you're more interested in doing, you know, doing up your, your room and your new apartment and, and so forth? Well, I probably didn't consider myself a maker until I started working at the idea realization lab. Um, but that's just because I don't think I knew what the word was and that there was this whole group of people who associate with the same kind of things I like to do, but I've always kind of had it there. Um, my dad was an engineer and he had a wood shop in the basement and I took shop class freshman year in high school, made this really sick Adirondack chair and nobody ever believes I made it, but it's really nice. <laughs> um, so it's always been there. And um, like just recently, uh, it's changed my mindset too, because had I not had this excitement to make stuff in my apartment, I would just go buy real furniture and my room would probably be done by now. But um I'm like, I could make that. There's no re need for me to spend like $200 on this, the cheapest, nice table I can find when I can just make that myself. Albeit it might come pretty close in budget, but I'm, I get a thrill from being able to say I made this really dope table that nobody else has. And it's legit. It works. It's solid. It's not going to fall apart like some some other furniture might from the place I got the rest of my furniture from. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah. so this is, you, you know, you've said a couple things in there, which, are, so first, first of all, you've always, I think, made things, it sounds like, but just this, this moniker, um, that it's associated with these days. Um, mm -hmm. that's the only thing that's really changed, but I want to talk a little bit about, you said you get a thrill out of, out of making mm -hmm. your own things. Why, what is it that fascinates you about, uh, about the process of making things or of the, of the end product mm -hmm. of, of making things? just I think the flow of it all so once you're in the zone and you're like you know what you're making and you know it's going to look really cool when you're done and the fact that it's like a completely custom table like I'm doing exactly what I want to make it um, but also the fact that like I get so satisfied when I finish it and and I have this beautiful table and like I said with the the chair that I made freshman year of high school like people don't think it's something that's typically coming from a person like me and I'm like, no, I made that. That's like all me. And this is who I am. Like, this is what I like to do. What do you mean by that? When you say people don't expect something like that from a person like you, what do you, what do you mean by that? Well, uh, design wise, people expect like designers to be like drawers or animators or photographers, not really makers. Um, and also like I'm this girly girl and, you know, not to put like feminine stereotypes on me, but like, I like, I don't think I seem like a maker right away because you think of a maker maybe being similar to a lumberjack. <laughs> but huh. I wear high heels and ton of makeup and, you know, I don't think people get that right away. You know, what's interesting is you, you mentioned, you know, people don't expect, um, uh, you know, that end product of designers. And I, 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 I suppose specifically you're talking about you know, some of the designers at, at DePaul, you know, the, the graphic design program and so forth. Mm -hmm. um, you, you, what do you find about the, or rather, do you find that the process of making things helps you in, in, with your graphic design uh, work? Oh yeah, definitely. Cause uh, making is a lot about trying and failing and then just trying again because I definitely was not good at working with wood or other materials before I started getting a better knowledge of the stuff I'm trying to do. And it's similar to design. So I, I'm a little more comfortable with like, 
all right, this isn't working. Like, how can I reshape this and how can I flip it around to make it actually something that is beautiful and fits the needs of what I'm trying to accomplish. Oh, so, so like it, it it's uh, almost like a question of persistence, would you say? Is it, 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 yeah. it uh, forces you to, to what? Uh, persistence, yes, but also um, to dig a little deeper than aesthetics because, um, mm. I don't know, growing up, I was always frustrated that I wasn't really good at drawing. Um, and I think it's very easy for people to get stuck in like a one specific style if they're good at it from the get go. And I've never really been like super amazing at one particular thing. I've kind of been a general jack of all trades. So it's it's helping me step away from that fear that I have to be like make something picture perfect and it has to look exactly like a photo. And now I'm like, no, there's styles and I can make it like make it more than just what the initial concept was. So interest, so like a little cha- risk taking and uh, uh, not so mm-hmm. concerned about perfection. So that's what's interesting to me is, um, you know, w- you came into the idea realization lab, um, you know, last summer mm-hmm. and uh, you know, you took, you, 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 you learned how to use everything there real quick. Um, and then you mm-hmm. soon went on to, you know, not only teach other people how to use those things, but, but you kind of helped you fostered this environment where, um, you know, other people kind of took that mindset on that you were just describing of risk taking and, and so on. And so, you know, one of the questions I'd, I'd, I'd like to, to hear you talk about, maybe one of the things I'd like to hear you talk about is how um, how you teach people that in a creative space and how you foster that kind of an environment. Hmm. Well, I think before I talk about that, I, I want to hit the point where um you said that I'm like teaching other people uh, to take risks and stuff. Um, that That is what really opened my mind because, you know, I'm like trying to do things one way and not, not ready to consider something completely unique from what I had originally con- like I- idealized. But to teach other people um, to have this mindset uh, is not only just the workshops that we were having and, you know, just people hanging out and asking questions, but it was like getting rid of the fear to like just use something when you don't exactly know what it does or how it works and just seeing what the results are. So I guess a little bit of experimentation because that was my problem all the time is, you know, I don't know what to use for this. I don't know how to use it. And so I'm just not going to do it because like, I don't know, I don't want to take the time to learn that. But people are so curious now. And ever since I was like, well, let me just experiment and see like what this does and how it goes. And maybe I'm not doing it right, but maybe this application can work for something else instead. Cause there's always more than one thing to use. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's actually why this podcast is named this should work. It's yeah. got that same kind of <laughs> mentality. Um, and it, so you mentioned these, the, the mm-hmm. workshops, could you talk a little bit about like what, yeah. what those workshops were? Give me like one example of that. And then, Maybe can you, can you also then walk through, can you give me an example of how you might do that with um, people who are taking the workshop, how you might um, encourage that kind of risk-taking that you're talking about? Right. So my specialty um, at the Idea Realization Lab was the CNC router, which stands for Computer Numeric Control. Um, and it, I think, was the most intimidating uh, tool for people to use because we taught workshops on the CNC as well as the laser cutter and the 3D printer but the other two are a little more um, intro and they're not as scary because the CNC router makes this loud noise and it sounds like a you know a heavy duty power tool so people get intimidated easily but I would tell them hey like all you have to do is watch what it's doing and then you can kind of learn from there so the big thing too is um, I would always tell them your first cut probably isn't going to go perfect and you're probably going to have to do it again but that's because there's so many variables but it's just a matter of taking the time to identify like what went wrong and what you might need to change because people get so scared easily like oh it didn't work out I'm, I'm not going to use it I'm not good at it I'm like nobody is ever good at doing this right away so you just have to make sure that you're okay um, to really examine what you're doing and and just take a pause and go back to it and keep doing it. How, how did that go over with, with students who, who had never experienced that before? What were the, what were the reactions you got from them? 
I think they kind of understood because I would look at their design and um, I always checked everybody's before we started and I'd tell them, I don't think this is going to work because of like how thick these lines are or um, the type of material we're using. And then I would explain to them what, what happened and they responded really well because they're they're just looking for someone to kind of be there for them and um, step them through the process because they're experiencing a lot of confusion and it's a lot of information right away. So they would come back and they're like, I'm definitely going to redo this because like you told me what was wrong and that's actually pretty easy to fix. So, you know, I'm going to take the time and remake this thing. What's, what's the, so a student goes through your, the, the workshop, they, um, mm-hmm. you know, they get exposed to, you know, this, this kind of model of, of, you know, acceptable risk-taking and um, uh-huh. and maybe they walk away with you know with some confidence with with that particular machine, um, but but there are so many other you know the idea realization lab for people who have not been there or have not been to a hackerspace or a makerspace is you know it's a pretty big space. It's got in addition to the CNC routers, we have laser cutters and 3D printers and you know vinyl cutters and um, all your traditional wood shop tools and things like that that you can think of. And what's the you know, so there's all this other stuff here. And, and um, uh-huh. you know, I guess I'm wondering, is that an easily, this idea that it's okay to take risks, is that is that something they take then to, to these next things that they're working on? Or, um, you know, how does, how does that, how does that work out for, for the students who visit that space? Definitely, it does. Um, it really opens up their mind. Um, and I think the community makes a big difference in that, because everyone is curious about what's going on. And they, they kind of want to know more. So they're asking questions and they're watching along and then they're like, Hey, I could do that too. But in an ideal world um, at that makerspace, um, I wanted, I like to start them out on something that's easier, something that's not so scary and then step them up through it. So we usually start like the vinyl cutter and screen printing, and then maybe we'll move to 3d printing or laser cutting. And then they get to the CNC router. By the time they get there, it's um, not so like there are so many different things that I can touch and I can play with. And I I'm realizing that the people here who work here aren't going to yell at me for doing something wrong. They're just going to help me find out the way to do it the right way. Um, go well, ahead. No, really cool. That's really cool. That's a good way to put it. And you mentioned a couple, you mentioned community and you mentioned something else that mm-hmm. I, that I kind of glommed onto, which is curiosity. Yeah. Um, and it's a, a, a community of curious people or so, you said something to that effect. What is, what does that mean to you to, to be curious and to have a community of curious people? And, and how do you, how do you make sure that, um, a creative space or a creative mindset, uh, uh, stays that way? Yeah. Um, having a curious community to me is, is very similar to having like an accepting community, but with a the additional um, thing that everybody wants to touch stuff and make stuff. Um, if you leave like your project out, um, people are looking around at it and they'll be like, how did you do this? Like, like what, what is this part over here? And um, I think asking questions uh, is a big part of that because um, you can look at something and you're only going to get as much as you can see. Um but the second you start asking questions and interacting with the person who made it, or maybe the people who've just been there also watching the person who made it, you're going to learn a lot more. And it opens up a lot of ideas where you're like, oh, I could do that. And it's just a matter of, you know, when people go to the art museum and they're like seeing these abstract paintings and they're like, what is this? This is just a couple dots. Like I could do that. But it's, it's from taking that perspective where you're looking at something and actually making it. Hmm. What's, why is it the case that, um, you know, there, there, there might be a space like this. So there is, there might be other spaces like this, Uh um, at DePaul and certainly at at any university there are, there are creative spaces, but why is it that it takes a specific kind of environment, Uh um, for people to, to feel like it's okay to have that sense of curiosity and risk-taking? Well, I think it's because people are so used to being told no and used to having rules and restrictions and fines and penalties if they do stuff wrong that they don't want to try 
Um, but when you step into a space like the IRL where we're saying, do whatever you want, just do it safely, um, it, it really opens up a lot of avenues because you're like, wow, <laughs> I can get really messy here and I can, you know, be comfortable because I think people scare away from things so quickly and and it's just a matter of telling them that like you're okay to be here and and we want you to do stuff and we we want to also do the stuff you're doing so like let me watch you or let me help you that's perfect so what's the um you know we 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 kind of alluded to maker things and we've been talking about the IRL the idea realization mm-hmm. lab a lot would you, would you consider it a a maker space. I don't even know if I, I don't know what I would call it, but do you think it's part of this? Is there a maker movement? Is it part of this whole, what people are calling a maker movement? Is it a maker space or is it, is it something else? What, what, what's your impression? I definitely think it's both. It will both, yes, a maker space, but a little bit more than that because the kind of people who are coming through the IRL are people who don't know about making and are just like, what is in here? Um, and I think that's where it's really unique because we're teaching people who have vastly different backgrounds, like business or, um, design or, um, I don't even know, like communication, something so far away from what they would typically think of and what they get to do on a daily basis. Um, that the community there is just, is, is really helping people who have never really considered themselves creative, maybe. to expand into this entire different direction. Interesting. So, so the different backgrounds that people come come to the mm-hmm. space with, um, you're saying that that kind of uh, makes it uh, a little bit more or a little bit different than than what a, a traditional makerspace might be considered. Yeah, because uh, when you have a makerspace in a community, people who already like to do this stuff are going to go there. And they already know a little bit about the machines and, you know, they already have a project in mind, but this is a space where they're like, wow, I can screen print a t-shirt. That's so awesome. Like I have a club that I want to make t-shirts for. And that kind of dips their toe a little bit into it. And they're like, well, I had a lot of fun making these t-shirts. Like what else can I do? And like, what else is here? And it's, it's just a whole can of worms for curiosity because you finally get access i think that's the biggest thing is access to all of this stuff because a lot of people have never had the opportunity to work with any of these machines at all um so they don't know what they're capable of well jen i think that's a pretty good note i you know i know you're short on time i don't want to eat up too much of it um or we're both short on time really uh but <laughs> i think that's a really good note to kind of to, to wrap up on. Um, but a w- couple questions for you. Uh, mm-hmm. where can, it, uh, where can we find some of the things that you're doing online? We already talked about Dremel brand, but you personally, mm-hmm. where, where can we find, um, out what you're doing and how can people <laughs> get in touch with you? Um, well, they can go to my portfolio, jenlawhead.com, um, two ends, but, uh, that'll be a matter of if I get around to updating it with what I'm doing. Um, but I'll probably start posting stuff on the Instagram. And uh, what what's your Instagram? How do what's that? Where's that at? <laughs> it's underscore minimum underscore rage underscore. Oh, okay. And I'm a very chill person. <laughs> what um what about uh, you know personal appeal? What's the chance that uh-huh. we can get you to come to DePaul and maybe uh, have Dremel come show off some things? Yeah, yeah. I have to respond to an email about that. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay, okay, good. Yeah. So we already. We already um, yeah, I'm. I would definitely want to do that. It's just a really busy season right now with the sure. sweepstakes, so awesome. I would really want to get over there because that's my favorite part. I miss teaching workshops and, you know, seeing people's eyes light up, and it's very much the most exciting part of having these types of tools. Well, let's see if we can get Dremel to uh, let us steal you for a little bit and yeah. uh, show <laughs> off some of the stuff they're doing then. So, mm-hmm. Jen Lawhead, thank you so much, Jen Lawhead. Yeah, uh, thank you. Former, former, uh, I was going to call you the faculty director, the <laughs> former head lab moderator of uh, the Idea Realization Lab, and uh, currently working for uh, for Dremel Brand. Thanks so much, Jen. I appreciate it. Thank you.
This has been session three of the This Should Work podcast with the first head lab moderator of the Idea Realization Lab at DePaul University, Jen Lawhead, and now a an employee and awesome person working at Bosch with Dremel Brand and all of their great things. Thanks again to Jen for joining this podcast session. And if you'd like to listen to more of these sessions and listen to future sessions, please subscribe to our podcast on any of your major podcast feeds, iTunes, Overcast, etc. And check us out at shouldworkmedia.com. That's shouldworkmedia.com. Stay tuned next time for session four, where we interview Andrew Morrison, professor at Joliet Junior College, studying the physics of sound and doing all sorts of other awesome things in makerspace land. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Thank you.